As you settle in to find your seat, um, our good friend David has been has a verse that the Lord has laid on his heart, and it's just a wonderful way for us to introduce our time in the Word this morning and to prepare us for Easter. So, uh, David, share the verse that the Lord has for you. Matthew fifteen twenty four. Render disciples that bush. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his word and follow me. Amen. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Thank you, David. And that's what we're really doing this uh, Easter season as we prepare for next weekend. We are following Jesus. We are walking with Jesus towards the cross, towards the empty tomb, as we've been looking at the end of John's gospel, talking about our crucified, risen Savior. And we've seen Jesus already has been betrayed, arrested, questioned by the high priest Caiaphas. He's been transferred to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He's been accused of of insurrection against Rome. And we saw two weeks ago that Pilate does not want to get involved, right? He sees this as a Jewish problem. He does not want to deal with Jesus He's tried to release Jesus. He's told the, the, the mob that the Roman, or excuse me, that the Jewish leaders have gathered that they can either choose to have Jesus released or Barabbas. Barabbas is a convicted uh, robber and insurrectionist, but they choose, shockingly, to have Barabbas released. And so we're picking up this morning in John chapter 19. It's page 905 if you're using one of the blue hardback Bibles. We're going to see this morning this trial with Pilate continues. It's Friday morning now. Jesus is still with Pilate. History tells us quite a bit about Pontius Pilate. Historians tell us that he over, uh, came, came over the Roman province of Judea about five or six years before these events. He was the governor, would not have been a very prominent position because Judea doesn't have a lot to offer. The Jews are notoriously non-compliant toward the Roman authorities. Because unlike in other places in the, in the Roman Empire, the Jews never took on a Roman identity. They see Rome as an occupying force. The Romans have allowed the Israelites to continue to practice their religion and, and, and that has heavily influenced society and culture in Jerusalem. And so there's this constant tension between the, the Jews who have an identity as God's people and the Roman authorities. Historians tell us that, that there was a big uproar between Pilate and the people. Pilate brought in uh, Roman flags and shields with, with Roman symbols and images into the holy city of Jerusalem, and it caused quite a big uproar. Pilate built a big aqueduct in Jerusalem, but to do so, he, he um, confiscated money from the temple to do so. And so the Jews, of course, were not very happy about that. Uh, history tells us about three years after the death of Jesus, there was a group of, of Samaritans gathering for uh, religious um, purposes, and, and Pilate sent in the army to attack them. Some of them were executed, and apparently at that point, about three years after the death of Jesus, Pilate was called back to Rome, called to question for this attack uh, on, on the people of Samaria, and, and Pilate lost his position. Historians describe Pilate as an inflexible, corrupt, and cruel leader. And we're going to see him kind of highlighted in our account this morning. And at face value, Pilate is the one that's in charge. But as I think you'll you'll find as we read and unpack this morning, Pilate's really struggling to maintain control, right? He's got the title, but he's not necessarily doing a great job of managing the situation. Everybody knows that the emperor Tiberius is the true ruler, right? Pilate is, in essence, just middle management. He's just trying to keep things together for the sake of the emperor. The, the Jewish leaders, we'll read this morning, actually hold that over Pilate's head, his place under 
the Roman Emperor Tiberius. Now part of Pilate's challenge, we're going to see him juggling this morning, and part of his challenge is that he has all these different roles that he's trying to play. So he's the governor of the land, but he's also the ranking military officer in Judea, and he's also the lead judge of the court, right? So that's a lot of of roles and hats to juggle. And Pilate, we'll see this morning, is, is in this major predicament. And he's going to waver. He's plagued with indecision. And, and I think as we read this morning, what we find is a weak leader. In fact, we'll see that he's driven by fear, ultimately giving into the, the demands of the crowd. And so we see this power struggle going on this morning. And, and as we read, I find myself asking a question like, who's really in charge here? Is Pilate really the one in charge? Is it the mob that's in charge? Is it the emperor? Is it the high priest Caiaphas? Like, who's calling the shots? At the very end of the passage, we'll read this morning, what I believe is the climax, Pilate brings Jesus out before the mob, and Pilate's mocking, and Pilate calls out, Behold your king. Pilate not even knowing what he's talking about, but we know, right? Looking back now through the lens of of the resurrection, we know that Jesus was truly the king. Jesus was truly the one in charge. Pilate didn't have control of the situation, but, but God in heaven, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit certainly were at work. And so we're going to pray and read together the first 16 verses of chapter 19 in John's gospel. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that it is a historical account, but more than that, it is the word of God. Not only does it speak true about the events that take place, but it speaks truth to our hearts. And so I pray, God, as we read, as we read the, the characters and the history, as we, as we see and look through the eyes of Pilate, I pray that you would stir us, that you would drive us to faith, that you would drive us to, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to follow you, and ultimately to look to this Jesus, not only as, as, as Savior, but as King, as King over our lives. So help us to behold the King this morning. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. 
They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Amen. I want to look at this account in four sections this morning. We're going to look at, at four aspects of Pilate, four things that Pilate said. The first one we see is, is Pilate's predicament. We're going to look at, at verses 1 and 5 and see the predicament that Pilate is in. See, after the Jews choose to re- release Barabbas instead of Jesus, John says that Pilate flogged Jesus. Now it's interesting, Pilate of course had soldiers under his command, they would have been the ones doing the whipping, but John assigns responsibility to Pilate himself as the one that would have flogged and whipped Jesus. We read here in verses 2 and 3, and we can look also at details in Matthew's gospel, that while Jesus was being punished, the soldiers decide to have some fun with him. Now, of course, Jesus is, is, has been brought up on charges of insurrection, of claiming to be a king and, 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 and um, challenging the, the authority of Rome. Now, of course, Jesus was, was unlike any other human king, right? He had no wealth. He did not come with power or sophisticated social status. He had no army. He didn't even have a political platform to, to put on his website. But he was charged with being king. And so, and so these Roman soldiers come and they mock him. They mock this poor carpenter from Galilee. They twist together some branches. They make this crude crown and push it down into his, into his head. They dress him up in a purple robe, which would have been the color of royalty. They spit on him. They hit him. They kneel down before him and they mock him. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews! Right? They're just mocking him, degrading him, humiliating him, imitating the familiar Roman salute, Hail Caesar, doing all of this to denigrate him. Now, now, typically this severe whipping, this flogging would have accompanied the sentence of crucifixion. But Pilate at this point has no motive, has no intention to see Jesus crucified. He's still trying to release Jesus. He's already said in chapter 18, I find no guilt in him. He said two more times that we read this morning, I find no guilt in him. See, Pilate at this point is just hoping that, that severely beating Jesus and humiliating Jesus will be enough to, to quench the Jews' desire for punishment. Because, again, Pilate's trying to figure out how to get his, his way out of a predicament. A predicament is a jam, right? It's a dilemma. Anybody ever been in a tight spot at work, tight spot at school, a tight spot in a relationship where it seemed like there was no clear path forward, right? There's no way to do something that felt right, but also was, like, practical and manageable, you know? Maybe your boss has put you in a position or, or, or your friends at school or, or maybe even in a, in a marriage relationship or, or, or some kind of pressure that you're under. How, how do I do what's right and, and what also is going to, you know, resolve the situation? So Pilate is in this predicament. He knows if he doesn't appease Caiaphas and convict Jesus, he knows that the mob could quite likely get out of control. Now Pilate knows that the Jewish leaders have only brought Jesus before him because of jealousy. They're jealous of his power. They're worried about his following getting out of control. But Pilate is also the judge of Rome, and the Romans believe in justice. Pilate wants to rule fairly, right? But he's also a governor, and he's got he's to manage the people in his, in his reign. He wants to appease Caiaphas, but he's also a military captain, and he knows that there's a, there's a threat of, of violence, of, of security, So he doesn't know what to do. And so in verses 4 and 5, he brings Jesus out before the Jewish mob in the courtyard. He parades Jesus in front of them in his pathetic pathetic state. And they bring him out in this mock royal garb. Jesus would have at this point been bloody, been beaten. And Pilate proclaims, behold the man. 
What, what's he saying? This, this statement, behold, the man is an attempt by Pilate to diffuse the situation, to try to get himself out of the predicament. Pilate, in essence, is saying, look at this guy. He's poor. He's weak. He is no threat. He's no king. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. In other words, there's no reason to charge him with any crime. Take him away and just go home. He's trying to disperse the crowd. And he's hoping that humiliating Jesus, severely beating Jesus, that the mob will realize, you know what, this whole thing is a sham. And and Pilate's hoping to satisfy them, hoping that he can just walk away. But here's what's interesting. While, While this statement, behold the man, is meant to denigrate Jesus, John's account, I believe, is pointing us to a deeper reality to this statement, behold the man. See, throughout John's gospel, Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man. That's the title that Jesus again and again uses to refer to his messianic identity, indicating his status as true humanity. Jesus is the the new Adam, the one that's been chosen by God to represent humanity. And while the words, behold the man, were spoken to emphasize Jesus' tattered and helpless position, I believe that we can read in those words an indication of Jesus' perfect and planned position before God. See, that man was true humanity. He truly was the man, the new Adam, chosen and anointed by God to stand before our Creator to represent you and I. And Jesus, though beaten and humiliated, stood before the crowd as a mockery, but He stood before God, righteous and humble. Stood before God in our place as our substitute, our mediator. And that's what we celebrate as we anticipate Good Friday, as we anticipate Resurrection Sunday, even this morning, in a moment, after the message, we'll come up and celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll celebrate that He's our mediator, the one that stood in our place. See, what's interesting is this. Pilate, again and again, says this man is innocent. I find no guilt in him. And from a human perspective, he wasn't guilty, but hear me, he was guilty before God. And the reason I say that is because God, our Father, our Creator, took our sins and and attributed them, counted them as on Christ, transferred them to Him. Jesus died in our place, not at the hand of Pilate or Caiaphas or the Romans, but at the hand of God He was killed. Behold the man, our mediator, dying for our wrongs, for what you have thought, what you have said, what you have done, was placed on Christ. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul would say this, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Behold the man this morning. Behold the man who is your Savior. See, the next aspect of of what John highlights about Pilate, we see Pilate's fear. Look at verses 6 to 8 with me. The chief priests, the temple officers, all the members of the Jewish Jewish ruling council, they're not dissuaded by Pilate's spectacle. In fact, I I think in a sense when, when Pilate brought him out before them, I think it only emboldened them in their twisted agenda to see Jesus killed. The mob now cries out, crucify him, crucify him. Now look, it's a terrifying reality that these religious leaders are calling for crucifixion. These supposed men of God. Crucifixion is the cruelest form of execution invented by the Romans for the worst criminals, filled with incredible physical pain, only matched by the public humiliation. And, and this cross here that we have, have on display, no, it's not missing something off the top. Many historians think that this would have been an accurate representation of what a Roman cross would have looked like. 
And criminals would have been, would have been lifted up on this cross for all to see. Hanging nearly naked. Stripped and whipped and beaten. Left to die. To suffocate under the weight of their own body. Overcome by either trauma or the inability to breathe until they, until they died. And that's what these religious leaders are calling for. That's what the crowd was calling for. And look at verse 6. Pilate responds for the third time by declaring Jesus is innocent. And he says to them, look, if you want to crucify him so badly, you take him and you do it yourself. I'm not going to have him executed by the Romans because he's not guilty of anything. Now many commentators read verse 6 and think that Pilate is being sarcastic. In his offer that the Jews take him and crucify Jesus on their own. We saw last week in chapter 18 verse 31. That under Roman occupation the Jews don't have the legal authority to sentence anyone to capital punishment. And while Pilate's comment there may have been sarcastic. As my mom always says behind every joke is a little bit of truth. And I think Pilate would have been happy. For the Jews to execute Jesus on their own. I think he genuinely is willing to do anything possible. To get himself out of this predicament. To get himself out of the trouble that he finds himself in. Because he's got this dilemma. And and here's the thing. Rome, while very harsh and cruel by our standards. Is a nation of laws. And Pilate does not want to condemn an innocent man. But he also knows that if he continues to ignore the pleading of, of the mob. There will be an uprising. And I think Pilate would have been completely willing to just turn a blind eye and let the Jews do what they wanted with Jesus, drag him off and kill him. I think in many ways that would have been the best option for Pilate, right? Get it out of my jurisdiction, out of my hands. Then he could just claim ignorance. I don't know what happened. I left and went back inside. But the Jewish leaders realized, no, no, no. We're not doing it that way. This needs to be legal. They know that his death must be legal. Now they realize in verse 7, we're losing the battle of wits against Pilate. And so they take an interesting approach in their continued push to try to have Jesus convicted. Rather than try to continue to convince Pilate that Jesus is in fact guilty of insurrection and treason against Rome. Look at what they do in verse 7. They remind Pilate, well look, Jesus has broken our laws. He's broken laws of Israel. See, in their mind, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. He had slandered God. He had called God his own father, claiming to be the son of God, making himself equal with God. Jesus had claimed, if you read John's gospel, he had said things like, I and the father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the father except through me. He said, only those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will have eternal life. These were outlandish, heretical, blasphemous statements according to the Jews. And on on at least one occasion, they had attempted to stone Jesus for these statements and he snuck away. I would go so far as to say that if Jesus truly had not been the Son of God, He would, in fact, been guilty of capital crimes according to the law of Moses. In Leviticus chapter 24, it says, Whoever blasphemes the name of God should be put to death. Jesus' claims were not only radical, they were outlandish, they were offensive, had they not been true. Jesus admits to being the Son of God in both Matthew and Luke's account of the questioning before The ruling council of Jerusalem. Jesus affirms, yes, I am the Son of God. Now look at verse 8. It's so fascinating. When It says, when Pilate heard this statement, when Pilate heard from the Jews that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, what does it say? Pilate was even more afraid. 
Now, now it says even more afraid, the implication being that Pilate has already been afraid. Now again, this is the guy who's supposed to be in charge. What is he afraid of? Well, I think it's understandable that he would have been afraid of this, of this angry mob gathered outside of his, of his residence, right? And I was trying to think of my own life. I've never been, you know, surrounded by a mob. I've never been at the threat of being overcome by a violent mob. But there was a one time when I remember that I was scared because of, of what I would call a mob of smiling kids. We were, we were in Haiti and we had, uh, we were working with the source of, of life orphanage there and we had walked about two hours up this mountain to this little village on the top of the mountain and and we were gathering together to do some children's ministry and as soon as you know children see westerners carrying suitcases full of what they can only imagine are toys and crafts right everybody comes and so i i was in this little room of this little tin shack literally on like the edge of a cliff at the top of this this mountain village and there was probably about 50 kids. And our attempts to do Bible lessons and to control the situation and do crafts were just, I mean, they were just laughing and smiling. The glitter that we had brought to, to you know, pour on that, they were just rubbing it all over themselves. They thought it was wonderful, right? We had one translator and, and things were like getting out of control, not in like a harmful way, but in a way of like, like we have no ability to control anything. Finally, the, the pastor that we were working with came over and, and quieted the kids but they were getting more and more loud and rambunctious and just excited. And I was like thinking to myself, this little rickety tin building is going to just get pushed off the side of this little mountain. So yeah, I can understand Pilate's fear. Not before a, a group of, of, of smiling kids, but before a, a, an angry mob. Knowing that, that chaos could ensue, that violent would, violence could break out, that he would have to call in the Roman army. Not a good thing to have on your resume when your primary job of governor of Judea is, look, just go keep the peace, right? So yeah, he's afraid. I think he's also a little bit afraid of making a wrong judgment, right? He's clearly indecisive. He's weighing all the angles, not wanting to make a, 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 an unjust decision, not wanting to displease the wrong faction, whether it be Caiaphas and the Jews or Caesar and the Romans. I, I think he's, he's a little bit afraid of Caiaphas, not because Caiaphas has authority, but because, as we, as we read, that one wrong move, and Caiaphas can quite easily tell Rome, hey, look, Pilate's not doing his job. He let an insurrectionist go free. Because he answers to Caesar. He's afraid of Caesar. He knows that one wrong move politically, militarily, he could lose his job or more to the point lose his life. And so I think there's all sorts of things stirring fear in Pilate. But, but, but I want to propose this morning, I, I think the text leads us to the conclusion that Pilate has some level of fear of Jesus. Right? It's, it's after John highlights Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God is what stirs fear in Pilate. Look, Pilate's seen his fair share of rebels in Judea. I think he knows that Jesus is no ordinary peasant causing an uprising. Pilate has never seen anyone carry himself the way Jesus does. He's never seen anyone walk into his court with the humility and confidence, with the level of peace, speak with the level of authority that Jesus spoke to him. Jesus has Caiaphas shaken up, and I think Pilate's shaken up as well. We, we read in Matthew's gospel that Pilate's own wife has had a, a dream about Jesus, a terrible dream, and she is scared. She came and warned Pilate, don't have anything to do with him. Now remember, Pilate's living in Roman society, living in a culture with a plethora of gods. Some of these gods were rumored to have come to earth. And I think Pilate's thinking to himself, 
what if Jesus really is the son of one of these gods? We know that this is the centurion at the cross only a few hours later was convicted in his heart by the testimony of Jesus. I think Pilate doesn't want to be the one to kill the son of a god. Pilate is afraid of who Jesus really may be, what kind of power he really might have, why he speaks with such humble confidence. I think Pilate knows there's something bigger at work here. This is beyond just a Jewish argument. This is beyond a political situation. Pilate is frozen in indecision because I think he's terrified. He's terrified of ruling wrongly. Now listen, Jesus was and is truly the Son of God. He was and is truly the King of Kings. But the only reason that Pilate had to be afraid of Jesus, the only reason that mob had to fear, the only reason that any of us have to fear Jesus, who truly is the Son of God, is if we reject Him. See, that's the irony, that's the cruel irony of this account, that Pilate was afraid of one that he had no reason to fear if he would only acknowledge his authority and power. But if we deny Jesus' authority, if we deny his position, if we stand in opposition to Jesus, like so many in his own day did, then, then yes, there is a reason to fear. Maybe some of you here this morning are stirred by fear. When you think about who God truly is, when you think about who Jesus truly is, afraid that if you truly surrender yourself to Him, that He will change your life, that He'll ask you to do hard things, He'll ask you to let go of things that you love. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you have a, a wrong perception of Jesus, that He's cruel, or that He's harsh, or that He's unreasonable, or that He doesn't fit with our 21st century understanding. But you have no reason to fear Jesus. See, if you will come to Him and surrender to Him in faith, acknowledge that He truly is the Son of God, acknowledge that He truly is the Savior word of the world, then there is nothing to fear because all that you will find in Jesus is care and love. A Savior that will protect you, a Son of God that will forgive you, a King of kings who will grant you eternal life. Come to Christ. Don't stand far off in skepticism or in fear or in selfishness, come to Him and find peace and protection and care. But what we see in the next section is that Pilate, who's afraid, who's wavering, I, I, think, I think much of this is driven by the fact that his own position is so tenuous. We look next at, at Pilate's position. Look at verse 9 to 12 with me. Pilate goes back out of his headquarters to question Jesus again, excuse me, goes back into his headquarters to question Jesus again to try to find out where Jesus is from. And he asks Jesus, where are you from? This comes up in the other Gospels as well. This is an issue of jurisdiction, right? Pilate knows that if, if Jesus is not from his jurisdiction, maybe I can send him to Herod because he's a Galilean and make him Herod's problem. He tries that. That's reported in the other Gospels. It doesn't work. But Jesus doesn't answer the question about his origins, about where he's from. Jesus has no intention of playing his game, no intention of trying to legally get out of the situation and in verse 10 Pilate is confounded by Jesus silence and he and he lashes out and I, and I sense some some immaturity here he says why won't you talk to me I'm trying to help you I'm trying to release you don't you know that I have authority to set you free I have authority to execute you now we see again and again in the gospel accounts of Jesus trial that night both before the high priest and before Pilate, that Jesus seldom speaks. He often remains silent. Now, I am quite certain 
that Jesus would have had no problem presenting evidence, presenting arguments to confound his accusers. I am quite certain that he could have gained his freedom that night if he set his mind to it, but he had no intention of doing so. And he would go quietly to the cross, like a lamb to the slaughter. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 says this of our Savior. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so he stands silent before Pilate, unwilling to answer his question, unwilling to engage in legal debate. Now Pilate is so full of weakness, so full of indecision, that he's, he, he's trying to assert his authority. Right? I think he's reminding Jesus of his authority. But I think on some level, Pilate may even be reminding himself, trying to reassure himself. Hey, I'm in charge here. Why won't you speak to me? Don't you know I, I'm the one in authority? Maybe you've been in a situation like that, you know, where you had an insecure supervisor at work that's continually trying to give orders and remind everybody that he's in charge. Or maybe with your own kids, you know, when we lose it and we speak up, you better listen to me. We shout, I'm in charge. You have to do what I say. And we're reminding them and trying to remind ourselves, you know. And so Jesus finally responds in verse 11. He speaks up quite boldly about Pilate's claim of authority. And Jesus says in verse 11, you would have no authority at all, at all if it had not been given to you from above. All authority is from God. And you only think you have authority in this situation. You, you know you don't want to be dealing with this. I'm only standing before you because Caiaphas handed me over to you. That's why Caiaphas bears the greater sin, Jesus says, because he has given me to you and you want nothing to do with this. Now again, Pilate is shaken by Jesus' proclamation. Jesus' words, I believe, stirred fear in, in, in Pilate's indecisive heart. Pilate perhaps knows on some level that his authority comes from above, whether in his mind that's Caesar or whether in his mind that's ultimately from God. And so we read in verse 12, at this point, Pilate tries even harder to release Jesus. He commits even more. I just want to let Jesus go and get him away from me. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to be responsible for the outcome. See, Pilate is done. He's tired, he's afraid, he's bewildered about what to do. He just wants to release Jesus and be done with it. But the Jews won't relent. And so Pilate, trying to release Jesus, realizing he doesn't have ultimate authority, they say back to him in verse 12, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Jesus is making himself out to be a king. He's opposing Caesar. If you don't stop him, you're opposing the emperor himself. Now, now this is a, is, a, is a not too thinly veiled threat. Do you see what the Jewish leaders are actually saying? They're saying, you do what we want or we're going to tell the emperor. We're going to tell Tiberius that you allowed a known insurrectionist to go free in Judea. See, even back then, the threat of tattletaling had some power, had some influence. But again, I, I find myself reading this situation and, and trying to figure out what position is Pilate really in? There's a power struggle going on, no doubt about, about that. Pilate thinks he's in authority, but who's really in control here? Is it Caiaphas? Is it Caesar? Is it the mob? Now, I don't envy Pilate, because again, he's juggling three different positions. Three different positions of authority. He's the, he's the, the judge of the court that's charged to uphold justice. He's the commander of the military, charged to uphold peace. And he's the governor of the providence, charged to uphold order. And in the midst of all of these things going on, he's indecisive, he's uncertain, he's oscillating between two worlds, a Jewish world, a Roman world. 
You know, half a dozen times in this account, it says that Pilate goes into his palace and comes out of his palace. He goes into his palace, he goes, what? that's just a visual representation of his indecision. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know which way to go. Yes, he has authority, but it's a limited authority. Yes, he has the right to declare Jesus innocent or the right to execute Jesus, but he doesn't have ultimate authority. Pilate's not the king. He's barely even a leader at this point. And as Jesus said, Pilate only has authority because it was given to him from above, from God himself. And so ultimately, who's in control of this whole debacle? Of course, we can step back from our position and we can see that it's God. God is in in charge. In charge of every event that's happened that night. In charge of every leader, every twisted lie, every unjust accusation made. As the Apostle Paul would later write in Romans 13, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And the early Christian church understood this about their lives, about the persecution that they suffered, about the unjust death of their savior look at what what's written in acts chapter 4 the christians the followers of jesus pray these words just a couple months after these events they pray to god in heaven the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the lord and against his anointed talking about jesus for truly in this city jerusalem they were gathered together against your holy servant jesus whom you anointed both herod and pontius pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you see what the Jewish Christians are saying there in the early days? They know who's calling the shots. And they look back on every people group that was involved in the death of Jesus that day. And while Caiaphas thinks he has an intricate plan to put down this rebellion... And while Judas had attempted to take matters into his own hands, and while Peter at one point tries to come in and save the day as the hero of the story, while Pilate thinks he's in charge, all of this happened. All that each of them did was according to the hand of God. According to the good and perfect predestined plan of our Creator in heaven. Listen, listen, we can rest that God, that God who was sovereignly over the trial of Jesus, every accusation, every, every corrupt government leader, our God who was sovereignly over the death of Jesus, we can rest that He is sovereignly over all of the intricacies of our life, all the injustices that we face, all the suffering that we face. Listen, if God's sovereign hand was accomplishing good out of the greatest injustice that ever was done. What's the greatest injustice to ever be done on the face of the earth? It's, it's the death of Jesus, the only perfect man that ever lived. If God's sovereign hand can accomplish His good purposes out of that injustice, can we rest, can we trust that He's in work in our lives, that He will accomplish His good, His good purpose? And whatever suffering you're facing this morning, whatever hardship you're facing whether it's external, whether you're being persecuted or pressured or put down or mocked for your faith, whether it's internal, whether it's the persecution of the devil, bringing lies and accusations, bringing thoughts of death or insecurity or fear or anxiety or helplessness or hopelessness, whatever you might be facing. Listen, there, there is nothing that happens outside of God's kingdom and God's reign. There is no authority except from God. And there is nothing that you face that is absent of God's plan. Nothing that you face that God Himself is not predestined to happen for His glory, for your good purpose in Christ. 
And just as Jesus stood before his accusers, silent, resting in his Father, knowing that Pilate didn't have authority, knowing that what was going to happen was the plan of God, by the grace of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, we can stand with that same level of peace and trust in the plan of our Father, the one who has ultimate authority. Look with me at this final scene. Look at at Pilate's final judgment he makes in verses 13 to 16. Pilate hears the threat about Caesar, that the Jewish leaders are threatening to turn him in, and Pilate says, you know what, that's it, I'm done. Pilate gives up, he gives in, he brings Jesus out to the courtyard before this bloodthirsty mob one last time. He sits down on the official Roman seat of judgment, the stone pavement, the place representing all the authority of Rome. And Pilate, in verse 14, declares the official charges to the Jewish mob. He says, Behold your king. What's he saying? He's saying, despite my best judgment, I declare him guilty of insurrection and treason before Rome. And the mob leaders shout back in verse 15, Take him away! String him up! Crucify him! And Pilate, I believe at this point, is egging on the crowd, playing into their plot. He says, You want me to crucify your king? And the chief priests, those that are supposed to be leading the people of God, teaching the law, leading worship, offering sacrifices, they cry out this incriminating statement. And they show that ultimately they're only driven by selfish pride, only driven by a desire to keep their own posture and status. They're willing to compromise anything. They show that they care nothing about God, nothing about His kingdom. And look at what they say. We have no king but Caesar. Despicable. These are the people of God. They hate Rome. They hate Caesar. He's their enemy. They're occupying their holy land. But yet they're willing to declare, we have no king but Caesar. Send this Jesus to the cross. And so in verse 16, the trial ends. Pilate gives his judgment. Jesus is convicted. He's charged with treason. He's sentenced to death. He's handed over to the executioners. He's strung up on a wooden cross. But you know, Pilate's not really giving a judgment. He's just surrendering. He's just giving in. Surrendering to the will of the people. Resigning himself to their will. That statement, behold your king, that was sarcasm by Pilate. Pilate knows Jesus is no earthly king. Jesus rejected by his own people. Rejected by those who deny him, who mock him for claiming to be a king. But that that statement, behold your king, while intended to belittle Jesus, while intended to incriminate Jesus, brothers and sisters, that's our rally cry. We rally this morning behind the cry, Jesus is king. That statement is true. It was more true than Pilate and the crowd ever knew when he stood before them in his royal garb, in his crown of thorns, in his bloody posture, beaten And brutalized, mocked, rejected by men, but accepted by God. Jesus is the one true King. He truly is our ruler, truly is our Savior, truly is the one who gave up His life for our life. And now He says, give you my life. He laid down His life for us so that we can live for Him. So that we can follow Him as a true King. A King whose throne is a cross, whose whose victory is the empty tomb. Now He calls you and I to serve Him, to follow this good King, 
to receive His provision and His care and His love and His forgiveness, to walk with Him now and to walk with Him into His eternal kingdom, to give our lives in worship, yes, in 90 minutes on Sunday, but in every waking and in every sleeping moment of our lives, that we would live in worship to our great King, that we'd follow Him, that we would take up our cross, that we would deny ourselves and follow Him, that we'd obey Him, friends, submit to Him in obedience in the compromises that you and I have made in our lives this week, in the ways that we've listened to the, the voice of the world, the ways that we've not given ourselves. And I don't say that to bring, to bring guilt upon any of us. I say that to bring conviction, to drive us to run back to Jesus, who is ready to forgive, to love, to walk with you, to take hold of the life that you have in Christ. The Apostle Paul says this, I think we read this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to read it again in 1 Timothy 6. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment. And the commandment there in 1 Timothy that we, we read a few verses beforehand is to take hold of eternal life. Keep the commandment to take hold of eternal life, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Can we be a people that, that, that believe in King Jesus, that take hold of eternal life, that cry out every day, Holy Spirit, give me the strength and the grace to follow you when I don't want to. That Jesus who laid down his life for us now calls you to follow him, to walk with him into a life of peace and joy and yes, sacrifice, but an eternal life. And so as we prepare now to come to this table, to come to the table where we feast upon his death and his resurrection and remember what he's done, there's this little note that I skipped over in, in verse 14. John makes this note. When all this happens, he says it was about 12 o'clock on the day of preparation of the Passover. Passover, this high holy day of the nation of Israel, the festival of unleavened bread that would have lasted a week. It's now Friday. They would have celebrated the Passover meal the day before. But Friday before the Sabbath on Saturday would have been called the day of, of preparation of the, of the Passover. The celebration of Israel's redemption from slavery. God's people that had been enslaved in Egypt Passover was, was their July 4th. It was their Independence Day. It was the cornerstone of their national identity. Jesus lays down His life, and John is telling us He is the true Passover Lamb. The true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Not to just free us from, from earthly slavery, but to free us from spiritual slavery of sin and death. And so we come now to the table.